0: Once again, I do wanna welcome folks uh, to this webinar and thank you for joining us. It's great to see so much interest uh, in the topic of Indigenous rights and the BC government's new Declaration Act. So my name is Kai Nagata and I'll be your host tonight. I work as the communications director at Dogwood here in the Vancouver office on Squamish and tsleil and Musqueam territory. And uh, joining me tonight, we have Kaisalem. So I'll let you introduce yourself.
1: Hi everybody. My name is Kalsalem. I'm elected council member of the Squamish Nation. I was elected two years ago, coming up next month. Um, Serve on a lot of different files for the nation: uh, rights and title, housing, um, language and culture, different things. Uh, Also, the appointed lead on a lot of our work opposing the Trans Mountain Pipeline, Um, and then also the spokesperson, so often speaking on behalf of the council uh, and the things that we're doing to the public and the media and all that kind of stuff.
0: Uh, But yeah. All right. I wanted to uh, jump right into the new development that uh, Squamish proposed. Can you tell me how to pronounce it? Sanak. 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 This is a new uh, project that was proposed on reserve land in Kitsilano. And you've actually sent us some images that I wanted to share with folks. Um, Do you mind just telling us about the the genesis of the project? Sure.
1: So the story really goes back to the 1800s. There was a village that was here in this site um, and our people had lived there seasonally, and then in 1860s, our people started setting up a permanent village year round. Um, when BC joined Confederation, uh, a number of reserve lines were plotted out, including the reserve or the village that was there for 60 acres. So if you know Vancouver, you can kind of think of it as all of Venier Park um, all the way down to the Molson site and the barracks that are there. Like here is the full, and then we start to see, the reserve right there, that's the original boundary in 1877. And then over time, um, the reserve lands start getting carved up by the provincial government and the federal government until eventually uh, most of the land ends up being expropriated. And at the time, the federal government, all they had to do was just take land if they wanted it, even though they gave in it as reserve. Uh, And then you see this little sliver in 2001 that was remaining, that was undeveloped um, or privatized. Um, We won through court action to have it returned back to the nation after a 20 year court battle with the federal government. And so we got 11 acres of land, um, which are you know prime, prime land in terms of real estate value because it's so close to downtown, it's uh, connected to a lot of amenities, there's lots of opportunity there. So about three years ago, our nation did a RFP request for proposals out to the market with all the developers that are in Vancouver asking them, would they be interested in partnering with us on our conditions? which included a 50 50 share of all profits as well as a development partnership that would manage and own any of the opportunities that would come from it. So as a result of the RFP we have picked a developer and are now proposing to build about 6,000 units uh, through 11 towers which you can see here uh, mapped out onto the site with a bunch of amenity spaces added as well. One of the interesting features is that we're planning to forego the typical podium structure so that we can actually activate most of the ground level as park space and activate underneath the bridge. And that would be community amenity space that would be open to the public. So the whole world would be able to come to this site with uh, some commercial uh, and retail built into the ground level with a unique structure of actually building um, these mounds that also act as uh, portions of the park as well. Um, some cool features is it's 10% um, parking planned for it. so one stall for every 100 units um, to limit the impacts of uh, car pollution and focus on climate action by building denser and less car-oriented development, and then connecting to transit and things like that. So it's a unique project because it's on reserve land, which means that the Squamish Nation is the zoning authority and the governing authority in the jurisdiction here although we'll have to work with the city of Vancouver on service agreements to cover the cost for things like infrastructure and municipal services that residents would normally
0: uh, have access to. So just to put this in perspective, you are proposing to build 6,000 units of housing in a city that has seen a net increase of rental units under 4,000 in the last 30 years. That's all other levels of government. That's all other developers. And so I wanted to ask, you know, folks, came to this uh, webinar for uh, a talk about indigenous rights and we're showing them a a real estate presentation. Uh, But how do you see uh, affordable housing uh, fitting into the climate fight and into the fight for indigenous rights?
1: So I think a lot of people have focused on the fact that like, you know, the Squamish nation is the zoning authority, the governing authority here, and so we're able to bypass a lot of the bureaucracy within the city of Vancouver. Ironically, um, you know, the the pro Indigenous Fraser Institute came out. Today, no, I'm just kidding. Um, the Fraser Institute, one of their their people, did an op-ed, which I thought was hilarious, saying that you know, city hall could learn a thing or two from the Squamish Nation by deregulating the market um, around development. But I think it actually speaks to more about a regional player actually stepping in um, and setting some actual leadership around um, things like uh, zoning reform and around transit oriented development and uh, where municipal councils are unable to move because of these kinds of um, political uh, decisions. I think it requires a bit of a regional leadership and I would say the province actually should step in more um, to set those types of targets and goals to fight the climate crisis in a way that a bunch of municipalities can't. Because it also requires a bit of a regional um, uh, action, not just you know these small little municipalities. Because the city of Vancouver could do a whole bunch of things, but if the whole region's not doing it in terms of building uh, housing that um, is, is fighting climate change or fighting the climate crisis, but also supporting transit, supporting um, livable walkable communities complete complete communities that are reducing carbon footprint i mean one of the things that we're planning for our project is that we're going to be reducing carbon emissions from it by um, creating energy efficiency that's around 75 percent or even higher and we're even trying to shoot for carbon neutral uh, in terms of the actual energy use that would come out of the site Um, so imagine a building a tower where there actually isn't any carbon emissions coming off the project that all of the energy generated off of it is either renewable or is being produced in a way that doesn't produce any carbon emissions. So things like that can happen,
0: but sometimes I think it requires a bit of a bigger player than just the city councils can seem to muster. Just to make it explicit, I mean, if we want to fight the climate crisis, we got to stop paving farmland to build, you know, subdivisions where people are miles from a bus stop and have to drive to work. And I think the the sprawl that we've seen in the region and uh, across urban BC, you know points to municipalities, you know, saying one thing and doing another when it comes to climate. So thousands of units of dense, walkable, affordable housing close to transit. I mean, this really is the vision of what the future's gotta look like in DC.
1: Well, and it's also, I think, you know, in the trade-offs and everything that people want. I mean, people want that idea of, I think people would welcome the idea to be able to say, okay, I'm gonna live five minute walk away. I'm gonna have all of my amenities five minute walk away. I'm gonna have entertainment and, you know, places to go for drinks or have dinner shop, get my groceries, get to go to the office, all of that kind of stuff is going to be within a five minute walk. And if it's not within a five minute walk, then it's within a 20 minute transit ride somewhere. Um, and that you actually don't need a car anymore. And I think that we know that in BC, 35% of the emissions that are produced here are actually from transportation. Mm-hmm. And so if we want to take a big chunk out of that, you know, 50% reduction we got to make over the next 10 years, uh, a third of that is going to be in transportation. Another big portion of that is gonna be in energy efficiency, either retrofitting all of their existing homes or building new standards for carbon, uh, carbon neutral homes going into the future. So it's a huge part of it. I think urbanism is gonna to have to be a huge part of the conversation. Uh, and I think I'm really proud of the Squamish nation taking a stance that we're gonna lead uh, where the city of Vancouver hasn't been able to
0: yet. Um, and maybe as a result, um, we are able to inspire uh, bolder action. I'm gonna play one uh, more video. This is from uh, near Williams Lake. And uh, this is the largest solar farm in BC. This was opened by the Chilcotin nation uh, last week. And, um, you know, we're starting to see uh, indigenous nations really take the lead in terms of fighting for not only a more sustainable economy, but a more fair and just economy. It doesn't feel like that's a coincidence to me. What do you, what do you think when you see these images?
1: Well, you know, there's a certain level of... I think a lot of the work that happens within our society is really rooted in values, right? It's, re- root, it's rooted in this, these, these concepts that are uh, integral to who we are as a people. And I think we all live by certain sets of values. And then we have values that are instilled into our organizations and our institutions. And so, like, for example, within a lot of um, colonial Western structures, one of the values is around adversarialness. If you look at our government, you look at our court system, you look at our economic system, it's all about winners and losers. It's all about A versus B. Um, you know, it's structured into this adversarial approach because uh, a bunch of people a few hundred years ago thought that that was the best way to structure our society. Um, but I think with Indigenous values, uh, especially around things when we think about how we take care of each other, how we take care of the land, how we respect the land, Um, how we respect future generations and how we respect our past. I think those are values that are still quite constant within Indigenous societies around the world and especially within Canada. And so you apply the opportunities that exist to tackle the problems we have, um, whether it be economic development and providing jobs and careers for our community members, or whether it be uh, tackling these big you know, monumental crises like the climate emergency, I think indigenous communities are really wanting to respond to that the same way that we've responded to all the problems we've faced throughout our history. Um, And so you see cool stuff like that, where you have solar farms or our development, um, there's a whole bunch of different things that I think are happening. I think the main thing is that a lot of this is able to happen when the colonial governments get out of the way, right? The, the, The Squamish nation is able to do these kinds of bold progressive things. Because the land is ours, and we're in the jurisdictional control here, uh, and so if the if the other layers of government can actually return control and return power and return influence back to Indigenous people, then we're able to do some really interesting things, um, especially on
0: these kind of societal issues that we're all trying to tackle. So that brings us to the government's uh, Bill 41, the Declaration Act. Am I right that you were there for the uh, for the introduction? I was. there. I got uh, fortunate to be invited to be in the legislature when it was introduced for its first reading. Can you? Can you give a little bit of a sense of the feeling in the room that day? Yeah,
1: I think, I mean, a lot of people probably have never really spent much time in the legislature. And for those that have, and I haven't, but for those that have and have told me, it was, um, it felt very um, kind of, you know, people talk to the word spiritual and in and, in and, and a, a wider sense of the word, but even just in the sense that there was a spirit in the room or an energy in the room um, that's not normally there. And I think it was because you know, we had all these indigenous leaders um, from around the province and across the country. We had this feeling of advancement and this feeling of progress that felt so tangible and so real um, that we couldn't help but feel like both a recognition that it's taking us so long to get here, um, but also a feeling of optimism and hope about where we're gonna go as a result of this. And I think it's that kind of feeling of like, you know, if anybody has ever been on a sailboat you know, you're waiting for the wind to come and that you're waiting and, you're waiting and you're waiting and you're waiting and you're waiting. And then it comes and all of a sudden you feel like, oh, it came really quickly. Mm-hmm. And I think um, what we're gonna see in the future is that this, this is precedent setting um, for all kinds of reasons, whether it be in the province or in the country or for municipalities or school boards. Um, but the room in that, the, the feeling in that room was just a, really, a real sense of like, we're in a moment um, that came hard fought but is something to be celebrated because there's just a whole bunch of things that have aligned, you know? I go back to the fact that if it wasn't for 1,400 people in Comox who voted for a a conservative candidate thus resulting in this whole minority government, we wouldn't be here uh, and we wouldn't have had a government willing to to
0: develop this type of legislation with us. Shout out to the Dogwood teams in the Comox Valley who uh, have been working to increase voter turnout among progressive and climate voters there for years. Um, So let's get into the bill. I mean, what it says is, it's a short bill. Yeah. Um, but what it says is that in consultation and cooperation with the Indigenous peoples in British Columbia, the government must take all measures necessary to ensure the laws of BC are consistent with the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. So I've got a copy here. Um, some people call it the declaration, the UN declaration. Uh, some people call it UNDRIP. I don't love that acronym, but mm-hmm. uh, it gets it's get used. So what, um, what is... What is the declaration and how would you explain what this is to people? Yeah, and uh, you know,
1: on the the name, I would encourage people to actually use the full name. And and a lot of people from BC make this point that the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples is a document that deserves the dignity and respect that it contains, um, which is a human rights document. And so we have this concept of human rights within the UN and around the world, including in the Canadian law, um, that these are the human rights that provide the minimum standard for dignity for human beings. Um, but that we recognize that within that concept of a minimum standard for dignity for human beings is that Indigenous people also occupy a place within our society where Indigenous people have faced significant challenges as a result of things like colonialism and genocide, that there needs to be a place as well for particular rights that recognize and provide a dignity for Indigenous people as well. And honestly, I mean, one way it was explained to me is that if you actually read the UN Declaration and the, the almost 50 articles in there, all of them are really responding to this, the, to, um, this concept of just protecting Indigenous people from genocide. And given the history around the world or with what's happened to Indigenous people in lots of places, not just North America, who have faced near extinction as a result of a very, you know, racist, colonial, white supremacist kind of concept around the value of Indigenous life and, and, and the value of Indigenous territories, the value of Indigenous societies, um, was to obliterate and, and, and to commit genocide. And so if you look at them, a lot of them are actually just a, a defense against uh, genocide and continued genocide of Indigenous people um, and providing dignity in a particular way. And so I think it's, it's you know, we have minority rights in, in Canada, um, but also Indigenous rights are something different because if you were, if, if, if colonization didn't happen, then a lot of the stuff that's in it, these indigenous rights either wouldn't be needed or they would just be in practice. You know, they would already exist. Um, it, there's rights in there around the control of education for our children, around the control of our children being apprehended by the state system. You know, those are things like, we go back 500 years, 600 years, indigenous communities controlled what happened to our children. Indigenous communities controlled the education of our children. Those are basic things that would have been provided within our own societies but because of the way that colonial governments have structured themselves and the ideologies that they've operated from those things have not been respected throughout our history and so we are saying that here's the minimum standard to protect indigenous uh, dignity and livelihood and society here are the rights that we're going to uphold the province has now um, put forward uh, this bill that provides uh, instructions for the government to move forward in a way that this is gonna now be the minimum standard and for as applicable law within BC um, and that all previous laws that have been passed and any future laws to be developed must um, go through a development that takes into consideration the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People and they must be amended uh, to conform to the UN Declaration where there is inconsistencies.
0: Uh, I really do encourage folks to get a copy of the declaration. You can get it online. The EFN website has a PDF version. Um, this has been around since 2007. This was adopted by uh, hundreds of countries. Uh, Canada dragged its heels at first, but has uh, become a signatory. And this is, you know, I think important to say that these are not rights that are granted or enforced by the United Nations. This is an international declaration recognizing uh, inherent and fundamental rights uh, held by all indigenous peoples around the world. Um, just to give sense of, folks a sense of how the how the declaration opens, I mean, Article number one um, just underlines the fact that Indigenous peoples have the right to all human rights and fundamental freedoms recognized in international law. Article two: Indigenous people are free and equal to all other people and have the right to live free from discrimination. And Article three: uh, Indigenous peoples have the right to self-determination. So, I mean, after uh, hundreds of years of of colonization and the government. Uh, enacting genocidal policies against uh, people in this territory. What does it mean to see the government introduce a bill that recognizes these inherent rights? I, I had a meeting with the premier, um, leaders of the Musqueam, Squamish,
1: and Tsleil-Waututh Nation, meet, met with the premier and a few ministers on, uh, you know, some issues that we're working on with the province. And one of the kind of reflections that I had afterwards with some of my colleagues from the other nations, was how, you know, some of our leaders were at the table with uh, provincial ministers and premiers back in the early 90s, and at that time we were arguing, pounding our hands, our fists on the table, trying to get them to understand that we have rights, uh, that we have title, uh, and that they need to respect that, and then they need to uphold that, and then they need to make decisions based off of that. And we were trying to convince them that we had special rights within the context of our territories. Uh, and it was a, it was constantly banging our heads, um, trying to get them and shaking them, trying to get them to understand that. The conversation this week with the premier was not about recognizing our rights. That's already been decided. It was no longer about trying to convince them um, that these are the minimum standards. It was about figuring out how we're gonna resolve some minor details related to an agreement that we're trying to create um, so that we can create success between our nations and the government relative to all the laws and regulations that they have to work through and what we're trying to achieve. So it was all—it was about. It wasn't about recognizing our rights. It was about how do we create a work plan so that we can uh, create a win-win. Like that was the discussion. Hmm. Um, and I think that that, t- that speaks to a lot of things that have happened. You know, the NDP wasn't always like this. Um, we go back to Gustafson Lake and some of the stuff that happened under previous NDP premiers, and they were not pro Indigenous rights. That is not the history of the NDP for all of its history. Um, and they were never this progressive on that issue. Um, but I think it speaks to the changing evolution of our society, the role that truth and education plays within changing the perception around um, the, the, the thought leaders in our society, and the policymakers and the things that shift opinion um, and, and the work that Indigenous people have been doing to try and educate the world. And so now you have, you know, premier, the premier of, uh, of, of the province who will acknowledge title. Of indigenous territory mm. who will say that yes the, the title of, to this land belongs to indigenous people and that colonial title is on top of that title and, mm. and, and you have a, a leader of the province um, willing to acknowledge that publicly which was not the case for every other premier going back to confederation so I think that these things are constantly changing and we know that throughout our history our, our, set, our ideas around what is normal are constantly changing um, but indigenous rights are one of those things that I think have, have have gone through its own challenges to get recognition and implementation. This is one form of it. Um, it's the second jurisdiction in the world to actually implement it, uh, to p- pro- put forward legislation on the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. Um, and it was really brought about through very thoughtful collaboration and advocacy by a team of Indigenous leaders on both sides, um, representing the government
0: and representing First Nations leaders who were pushing for this. Hmm. You talk about the premier acknowledging title, acknowledging land rights, and that's Article 26 in the United Nations Declaration. It says, indigenous peoples have the right to the lands, territories, and resources which they've traditionally owned and occupied. That gets some folks in the corporate media elite pretty nervous. Mm -hmm. That gets folks in certain industries pretty nervous. Um, And obviously, this declaration is about way more than just industrial projects it's about way more than pipelines and fracking but it is uh, unavoidable if you read the whole declaration that the province is recognizing title in a way that is going to have an impact on land-based industries how do you how do you have that conversation um, well there's a few pieces to that I think one of them is
1: you know let's let's talk about just recently um, yesterday um, the city of Vancouver used expropriation powers within the Vancouver Charter to expropriate two SRO buildings that have been just left under the worst conditions by slumlords who have treated the tenants uh, atrociously uh, and prov- failed to provide the dignity to um, a lot of people that were living in them. Uh, and so the city has chosen through the city council to expropriate these properties for a dollar each. Um, you know, the, uh, that's an idea that's interesting. Oh, the, so the city of Vancouver can expropriate private property uh, under certain circumstances, but the law doesn't quite currently uh, reflect the ability for Indigenous nations to expropriate lands back to their communities. But we start thinking about these concepts, like what are the powers and authorities that colonial governments have already given themselves? And now what does it look like to extend those concepts um, to respect Indigenous rights and uphold Indigenous rights in the same way? What are the decision-making that governments are making over our lands? And how do we now amend our laws or evolve our laws to also include Indigenous people in those decision-making processes? And I think when it comes to our territories, you know, the rights to our territories um, and the decisions over them, um, I think that we're moving in that direction. And I think that for industry that is worried, the problem is is that when Canada created itself, it created itself under this kind of um, false structure and these lies. And so it's it it's for industry to be like, you know, we're opposed to these indigenous rights and these indigenous concepts because of fear of a lack of certainty and all that kind of stuff. The problem is not that Indigenous people exist and that we have rights and that we um, are the original people of these land and that these are our territories. The problem is that Canada set itself up in a really bad way um, and didn't really structure itself in a way that was going to imagine that one day uh, Indigenous peoples might be able to uh, attain a certain level of dignity through respect that relationship that has always been there between Indigenous people and the lands that they come from. So, you know, if it's anybody to blame, blame the founders of Canada, blame the people who actually designed Canada this way, because that's that's the problem. Hmm. We're now going through this process of figuring out how to fix it, um, and we create these movements and we create these uh, uh, moments within our movements to actually advance that 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 work of how do we fix Canada, uh, how do we fix that relationship, how do we fix it so that these uh, minimum standards things are applying and that Indigenous people have dignity within our own communities.
0: I think that brings us to the conversation around consent. And uh, I wanted to quote Article 32 from the Declaration, which says that states shall consult and cooperate in good faith with Indigenous peoples through their own representative institutions to obtain their free and informed consent prior to the approval of any project affecting their lands or territories. So people are, I think, struggling still to wrap their heads around this idea of consent free prior and informed consent and i'm just curious how you've been how you've been thinking about it and what what um how you've been talking about it since the introduction of this bill yeah i think a lot
1: of people or a lot of um forces who want to misrepresent the u.n declaration and want to um confuse people about what that concept of free prior and informed consent means um, will often equate it with the concept of veto um and, and there's some really good work by different legal scholars who have actually um articulated the difference between veto and consent, um and, and free prior informed consent specifically. So the thing about veto is that let's say um there is a project that's being proposed and the constitution says that First Nations people have a veto over any project in their territory. What that would look like is a proponent goes to the provincial and federal governments, goes through assessment and a process to evaluate the project does a consultation with the broader public and then eventually maybe the government says okay here's some conditions for your project to proceed et etc 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 okay last thing you need to go to the indigenous government and get get and, and they can veto it or not at that point the indigenous nation could say nope and then it, it's done but the, the indigenous nation if that was a truly veto the indigenous nation didn't have to participate in any of the work that happened before that and they may not even be included in any of that it's just a clear no at the end of the story um, what's different about pre, uh, free, prior and informed consent is that it's about having a process where Indigenous people are both involved in that design of that process from the earliest stages, um, are involved in the outcome that might come from that process and that our participation in that process is free. So there's no requirement of, of, of some sort of payments to be able to uh, participate in any of consent process. Um, that it has to be prior, so it must be early. It cannot be uh, consent obtained at, at a later stage in the process. It must be very early that we are brought into that process. And so when you think about free, prior, and informed consent within the context of a lot of things, it's um, it's a process to First Nations um, having a say over uh, what happens. And that that kind of, that say can be a lot of things. Hmm. That say can be a First Nation deciding or Indigenous group um a nation deciding to apply conditions to a project. Um, Could be a a nation deciding to evaluate a project and investigate what the impacts might be before it makes a decision on whether it's going to approve or not approve a project. Um, It's going to look like a whole bunch of decisions that happen along a lengthy process um, before it gets somewhere on a decision on something specific. Um, But it has those concepts of being free prior and informed consent. Um, and I think that industries that are opposed to Indigenous people actually having a say, because you know the things that we want to have a say over might be of a higher standard. You know, they see it as a regulatory hurdle that uh, they, they would prefer a deregulated industry where they they have you know free reign to do whatever they want without any conditions. Um, bringing in Indigenous people as another order of government to have the authority to apply conditions just feels like an onerous uh, delay for them or cost or whatever. And so of course their opposition is rooted in their Mm. self-interest but what we're finding now is that you know the concept of consent has actually been embedded into Canadian law mostly into the jurisprudence within case law um, through the Supreme Court decisions already and so you actually see examples where various industry groups have come to the realization that actually if they work with indigenous peoples they're able to find more success than if they try and fight us, um, which is why it's really interesting with the uh, Bill 41 that was introduced by the BC NDP and supported by the Greens here in BC, has the support of the BC Business Council, the BC Chamber of Commerce, um, the BC Federation of Labor, which represents all of the uh, organized labor groups in BC, First Nations Leadership, And a number of environmental groups so you have business community labor community environmental community and first nations community all saying this is going to be good for bc and i think that that speaks to the fact that for indigenous peoples to actually play a role it, it means a whole bunch of things but it really speaks to um a lot of the success and progress that first nations communities want to create for themselves to address a whole bunch of issues not just environmental issues because we're not a single issue people Um, but a whole bunch of issues that we're tackling that the government has been absent on, that the government's been, that's abdicated their responsibilities in a lot of ways or continues to discriminate against us on, where First Nations leaders have said, we want the tools to be able to solve these problems. Mm. Um, And they make decisions based off of, you know, a myriad of of circumstances and
0: um, context or impacts that might happen as a result of those decisions. The old argument, I think, was that Recognizing indigenous rights would be bad for the economy. And what we're seeing instead is that um, Recognizing indigenous rights might be the first step in really unlocking a whole new era in BC Where the economy works for more people where yep. the economy uh, Is capable of creating affordable housing where the economy is capable of? Uh, providing jobs and prosperity without generating CO two emissions, right. and it seems like putting uh, communities that own the land back in the driver's seat around what is going to happen on that land is actually a recipe for long term decisions in the best interests of all the people that live on that land. It it really does feel like a a fundamental shift in the history of this province from colonization up to a point where you say we're recognizing rights, we're recognizing title and we're, we're actually handing over a lot of that decision-making power um, to Indigenous nations because the current system's not working.
1: Well, I think this speaks to uh, the history of power within a lot of Western countries um, and the concentration of wealth and the way that those who have concentrated wealth in their own hands have had an inordinate amount of power over the decisions of a have an impact within our society Hmm. so you know within Canada the early founders and a lot of the decisions that were made in terms of the structure of Canada was made by a small group of very wealthy white men uh, and that was the structure that the broader um, society had had at the time and so when we think about these types of things I think the struggle that unites us all is around this um, challenge to concentrated power in the hands of a few as opposed to power spread out within uh, all of our communities and all of our people. And what do we do when the problems that exist in our society refuse to be addressed by those who have concentrated power amongst themselves? Whereas, this the, and the impacts to not solving those problems are going to impact everybody or a vast majority of people. What does that mean when power is concentrated like that? And I think what we can recognize is that Indigenous people are local, Indigenous people are people who are from these communities and have lived in these communities for a long time and have a deep sense of connection and care for these communities uh, and these lands that we come from. And so when we think about what does it mean to have community control, have decisions made by the local people who are actually going to be impacted by those decisions, as opposed to you know, these wealthy few who live far away or these wealthy investors that don't even live in the country or even have any connection to the on the ground impacts that, that might come from the decisions. And I think that uh, that's part of the, 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 uh, the opportunity for all of us to come together, because I think that indigenous peoples have been struggling against that concentration of power, just like so many other groups of people have been struggling against that concentration of power. And you know, if you're a climate activist, it's the same story. If you're a worker within the oil sands, it's the same story. If you're a low income person and multi generations of poverty, it's the same story. It's always been about this concentration of power in the hands of the few. We, we've seen you know, just recently in some of the work that um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has been doing in the, in the Congress around holding all of these oil companies who have known that this was a problem 30 and 40 years ago that climate was gonna get wrecked by the things that they were doing and actively fought against anything, uh, any solutions to address that 40 years ago. You know, we wouldn't be in a situation where we have 10 years to make drastic change if we had started acting on this 40 years ago when the science knew already that this was gonna be a problem now. So I think that that, that's the universal struggle that we're all part of. Um, And so when you start supporting indigenous rights, it support it, it's a direct challenge to those concepts of concentrating power in the few and actually giving power back to, you know, some power, some influence um, back to local people and uh, people who actually have a real, uh, I think, best is interest in sharing the wealth and opportunities that really should be shared by everybody. And it's that kind of thing, right? You know, people might often complain about, oh, well, Indigenous peoples get this, Indigenous people get that. There's also a point to be made is like well if indigenous people get it then maybe everybody should get it you know if we are getting access to uh childcare or sorry uh, access to things like dental care and health care and education at, uh, in a way that most of the canadians feel like oh i don't get access to that why don't i get access to that i think everybody should be equal great let's all fight for affordable t- tuition let's all fight for um you know, affordable uh, health care. Let's all fight for these things that I think we should all have to provide dignity to everybody. Um, and let's take that, that power and that wealth away from the people that have concentrated
0: amongst themselves and actually distribute it amongst more of the people. Yeah, let's fight to avoid the climate crisis so we can enjoy going to the dentist. Exactly. And living in a beautiful tower in Kitsilano. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to um, take some questions now from, uh, from the audience. Uh, Luis has been kind enough to curate some for us. So uh, I think we do have to address uh, a big question that's in a lot of people's minds. You know, Will this bill, or, or can the uh, United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples stop or slow down already approved projects such as Site C or TMX, the Trans Mountain Expansion, the Tank Farm? Um, so that question comes from Barb in Cumberland, but there's a lot of folks who are asking.
1: No, it's, I think, I mean, understandably. I think, so here's the short answer, and then, I'm, then I'll tell you the meeting answer. The short answer is that Bill 41, um, does a n- number of things it provides a requirement and the government has to amend its laws it has to create an action plan with first nations on a review of those laws and then it has to report publicly on the progress on the review of those laws and then it also creates the ability for the provincial government to extend its authority around statutory decisions decision making to include to also give authority to indigenous governing bodies to also be a part of and also share um, the decision-making on any statutory decision that the province has made. So that's what the bill does. And and so it sets the framework that says UNDRIP is gonna be the lens that we review our laws. And then it says that we're gonna share decision-making with any statutory power that the province has made. That's simply what the bill does. the question is, does this actually stop any of these major projects that have you know, dire uh, consequences um, for climate and for our communities and things like that? Um, the short answer actually is no. The short answer is that the, the bill actually is more about not so much creating tools in this very moment. It's about creating a toolbox that we are then committing um, to developing tools. So when you think about things like the Environmental Assessment Act, Um, where you actually have indigenous people participating at an early stage. You know, if this bill had been done 20 years ago, Mm. and then all of the Environmental Assessment Act laws and regulations and other laws related to environmental assessment of projects was then amended 15 years ago, then when Trans Mountain came to request approval, every First Nation along the route would have been included and involved in any process that would have happened regarding the review and assessment of that project. Instead, what we had is we had the Christie Clark government just basically abdicate their responsibility and hand it over to the feds, who at the time was the Harper government and then the Trudeau government who were pushing this. So what you had was these governments making decisions without indigenous people at the table. Mm-hmm. The bill requires that going forward, any new laws or any previous laws have to be amended to, to include indigenous peoples and indigenous rights. Um, but it also means that any project that is currently you know, on the way or has been approved and all that kind of stuff. It doesn't provide a mechanism exactly for addressing those things. But that being said, um, you know, the the government is playing within the boxes that have been created currently. Mm-hmm. They're currently amending some of those boxes to open up possibilities, um, or they're now taking instructions relative to what the courts have told them um, or allowed them to do and so like one example of that is um just to touch on something that i can speak to specifically is that the squamish nation took the province to court and won recently uh over their approval of the trans mountain pipeline on a particular um environmental assessment uh certificate and the courts have stated that the it is that the province is now required to um that they have the opportunity to look at any of the conditions that were applied to the Trans Mountain Project relative to the report that was done for the NEB and apply new conditions. Um, and that, and the province has taken the instruction to say, we are now gonna consult uh, the public and First Nations on what those types of conditions might be relative to the, the authority mm-hmm. granted to the courts. And so there's an example where this government is actually choosing within the prerogative of the laws as they're written, to um, include First Nations in the decision-making that they might follow through on. Um, So I think that that's that's the essence of it is that it's really about how do we um, find all of the places where we can do shared decision-making and let's start incorporating those concepts into uh, our laws and regulations. Um, But it it really, unfortunately at this point, I mean, there's challenges to um, the authority of the province relative to some of these projects uh, and there's also challenges to the decisions that were already made by previous governments, whether it be the Conservative government, the federal level, Liberal government, or the
0: Liberal government here in BC, or the federal Liberal government as well. I think one one sobering thing that it's important to remember is that the federal government did introduce federal legislation uh, that was supposed to implement the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. That was killed in the Senate before the election. And so that federal law, which was introduced by Romeo Saganash and NDPNP, uh, for Northern Quebec that never made it uh, to royal assent and so we're in a situation now where because of the division of powers between uh, the provincial crown and the federal crown the feds still assert jurisdiction over things like interprovincial pipelines and mm-hmm. the feds are going to say well uh, you may have you know a provincial uh, recognition of rights framework mm-hmm. but until such a bill passes at the federal level uh, there's going to be issues and files on which the feds assert supremacy yeah um that said uh squamish is one of the nations that is continuing to fight uh trans mountain in the federal court of appeal yeah and we saw Slewitith and a number of other groups take uh leave to appeal to the supreme court uh just monday and tuesday this week including squamish and squamish yeah is that news is this an exclusive
1: well we put our press release out a day late because Uh, we were busy um with some other news that we had launched on tuesday right but Squamish and Tsleil-Waututh are taking it to the Supreme Court.
0: That's awesome. A question from Sandra, uh, and we'll be in touch with uh, fundraising details for the pull together yeah. uh, fundraiser for that. Uh, Sandra asks, uh, since Canada has broken promises, laws, agreements and treaties made with indigenous people, what makes you think this will be different? Um,
1: so I think the thing about, uh, part of it is just my view of politics and my view of the political economy that op- we operate. You know, politicians are, politicians in political office is one of these roles that very few people actually want within our society. You know, when there's an election, whether it's for an MP or MLA or a city council member, um, you know, the the amount of people who actually decide to put their name in the hat versus the number of people who actually decide on who's going to have that position is massively different. It's a small, small fraction. Um, And so that means that, you know, I think in a simplistic worldview, there are these monsters in the world who are doing the worst possible thing for our society. Um, But we don't realize that a lot of those people that we get get into these position of power is actually are created somewhere uh, or they're chosen. And Mm -hmm. so you think about our government, our government is made up of human beings. Um, human beings that were educated and influenced and um, created within our societies and within our communities, and that the vast majority of people who run for public office do it because they think that their their they're ideas that are going to be better for this country and for our society than you know others. Um, and I think that in the history of Canada, you know, racist notions around Indigenous people has guided the decision making by a lot of leaders who were put into positions of office. Um, It is different now when we think about electing people to office who don't have those same racist notions around indigenous people Mm. um, that might actually have an an um, anti-racist understanding of of the work that needs to happen. Mm. Um, But even when you think about the role that, or what happens, the consequences of electing diverse people to positions of power, um, when you elect people with class consciousness to positions of power, when you elect more women into positions of power, more uh, LGBTQ um, into positions of power, you get different consequences because there's different perspectives within the decisions that are being made. That doesn't mean that they're always going to make the right decisions uh, or the decisions that are going to make everybody happy. But I think what I think my message is not so much that it's about what the what you know the politicians and the, and the political leaders may or may not do, it's about who are we sending and who are we creating to, to those positions of power. And if we want governments to honor agreements and uphold those agreements, then we need to do a couple of things. We need to elect people that we believe believe in that. Uh, and we also need to raise people within our communities who also believe in that. And I think that's you know generational work. That's part of what's happening um, already. And our, it, it, it happens in our schools and happens in our media and happens within our society um but i i would say that i there's lots of human beings within positions of power that i absolutely trust and there's lots that i don't um and i think that these things you know elections matter is a big thing um and the type of conversations we're able to have depending on who gets elected is massively different Mm -hmm. um and so i think you know trust is is earned for sure um, we didn't trust the NDP when they got elected and we still don't on a lot of issues and, and they can spend the next two years earning that trust and if they get reelected, they could spend another four. Um, and I think that's part of, part of, you know, working together and, and trying to achieve results uh, eventually.
0: This is a very specific question. How does the bill deal with uh, the question of ban councils versus traditional hereditary government?
1: No, that's a g- absolutely great question. So one of the really um, powerful pieces of the legislation is it's done something that no other government has ever done before in Canada, which is recognize the self-determination of indigenous peoples. Um, It's in the UN declaration, but it's also within the bill itself. And the way that it does this is that the bill says that the province uh, through cabinet can um, negotiate in good faith, agreements with Indigenous governing bodies, Mm -hmm. Indigenous governing bodies to share decision making over any statutory decision making that the province has uh, acquired uh, or created for itself. And then it defines Indigenous governing bodies as those who have recognized or asserted uh, Indigenous rights or Aboriginal rights under Section 35 of the Canadian Constitution what the courts have acknowledged through various court decisions is that the title holders and the rights holders are not necessarily Indian bands. Mm. Um, they can be the clans within the clan structure of some of the nations of the North Coast. Um, it's the people themselves collectively. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that there are different ways that Indigenous communities organize themselves. You know, some have a clan structure, some don't. Some have clan mothers, some don't. Some have a predatory chief, some don't. Um, but what what the courts have stated is that the rights holders and those who are able to represent uh, the rights holders are not always the elected band council. Um, it could be, uh, and, and in some cases it is, um, but for some groups, what they've done is they actually done the work to uh, identify for themselves, um, what is the structure we want to create? What As, as a self-determining nation, um, how do we want to constitute ourselves? And so I use examples like the council of the Haida nation, which has a band council for their two communities, the reserve communities, but then they've created a council that represents the whole nation of the Haida people. Um, And they have a traditional council made up of the hereditary chiefs. And then they have an elected council with a president that represents the nation as a whole. And then they have an assembly where the members are are given an individual, right to vote so they've created a structure that combines their hereditary role with an elected role over uh their whole territory Hmm. the heat south uh and bella bella have done a similar structure where they have hereditary council and elected council and they've created a structure around that some communities have decided for themselves that they're going to do the work to figure that out Hmm. um many communities have struggled to also be given the resources and the tools to be able to figure that out for a variety of reasons but what it means is that this legislation doesn't say we can do agreements with the Indian bands. It says we can do agreements with indigenous governing bodies. And that indigenous governing bodies have to be whoever um, identifies for themselves what that means. And it's gonna be different because every every indigenous nation has their own laws and societies that they have created for themselves.
0: That seems really, really important to underscore is that just tell me if I have this right. Rights and title are held collectively Mm -hmm. by the members of an indigenous nation how they choose to delegate negotiators or representatives to interact with the crown is up to them. And what that structure looks like and what it's called is up to them. And what this bill does is recognize that that could be different in every single nation around the province. Yeah. That seems significant.
1: Um, It is significant. It's the first time in Canadian uh,
0: law that uh, the self-determination
1: of indigenous groups have actually been recognized.
0: Uh, another person asks, could this bill help Indigenous communities fighting for their rights in other provinces? Um, well, one specific example, I guess. Yeah. Here's, here's a question, right? If a river, yeah, say the Peace River, flows from BC into Alberta yeah. and into the Northwest Territories and the Mackenzie Delta, <clears throat> the flow of that river affects the rights of everybody downstream. Right. Does the fact that BC has a bill recognizing Indigenous rights, is that something that nations and other jurisdictions could use
1: yeah i think that that would be an interesting question and i i i think that part of it is is there's a whole bunch of laws that currently exist and so when we start reviewing those laws i think we're able to take into consideration like things, concepts like that um, and then decision making that happens within a province i think it can take into consideration things like that as well so um i think it's definitely open to that because of the self-determining aspect of you know, the way the law structures itself around indigenous governing bodies.
0: It does seem like uh, if this bill passes, if it makes it to royal assent, and if we, you know, if the sky doesn't fall, as Cheryl Kazimer said on the day it was introduced, um, it could be a powerful tool for uh, other, um, for advocacy groups and alliances in other provinces that are seeking similar legislation. It provides a template, a model um, for both federal Legislation, although it was modeled after federal logis- legislation uh, and possibly for other provinces. Um, so right now, just the status of the bill, mm-hmm. it's gone through first reading and it second. received second reading. Yeah. So it was unanimously moved by the house through to committee. Yeah. Uh, and then the house went on this two week break. Yeah. So they're coming back, uh, I think on the 18th and then they have like one week before Christmas and until after that the house doesn't sit again until the budget and the throne speech in february so yeah are you confident that this is going to uh to make it through um and become law in bc this year well the only
1: reason that it's taken this long and it wasn't passed uh, prior to the break is just because the opposition party has a you know parliamentary privilege around questions and and speech making within legislature the bc liberals were Mm -hmm. saying yeah the bc liberals have been able to you know they have the prerogative to to delay things um, within the legislative process mm-hmm. to a certain extent. However, when it comes back, we know that this bill is supported by the BC Lib- B.C. NDP caucus and the BC Green caucus, which means they have a majority. Um, but also, I think a, a lot of our allies within the province, especially within the business community, um, have actually been really trying to work uh, to convince the BC Liberals that this is good for BC and that this is good for... Uh, investment that this is good for the development of our economy, and I think that we're striving for unanimous support once it comes back into the legislature. And I think that that's really important and really powerful. And I think if all parties are uh, unanimous, I mean, in reality, like at the very, I mean, I think it's reasonable to say that I don't think indigenous the like, dignity for indigenous people should actually be a partisan issue. Um, and I think that there's an opportunity here for all parties to demonstrate leadership in a way for human rights and the, the dignity of the Indigenous people that I think would be really powerful. And I think all, can, all British Columbia should celebrate that. I think if you're a BC Liberal supporter and BC Green supporter and NDP supporter, you can be proud in saying that, you know, our leaders that I, I support and elect um, are helping move this forward. Uh, and so I think it'll come back. I think it'll have the support of a majority of the
0: MLAs and I think we'll probably see royal assent by the end of this session, um, which will be huge. So we're coming up on the top of the hour. I want to close with a question that, uh, that a few folks have asked, which is basically, um, <laughs> most of us on this call are not Indigenous. What can non-Indigenous uh, people do to support this fundamental shift?
1: Um, there's a lot. I mean, one of them I think is that this bill actually provides a really strong framework, as uh, I think, as you mentioned. And one of the things that I really strive to see happen is I think that like within a lot of the institutions that we have, um, there needs to be people advocating for those institutions to also take this framework and implement it within their organizations. So you start to think about um, how this might apply to a school board, um, how this might apply to um, universities. Um, and you take the same concept. Really, what's the concept? The concept is that throughout our policies and regulations and our structures, these concepts, these these articles of the declaration are gonna be the bare minimum that we're gonna apply. So there's no more arguing about whether this is right or wrong or whether this is true or not. Whatever the UN declaration says, that is truth from now on. And that organ- organization is setting that as a standard. And then that's the first part. The second part is then that we're gonna decide that as an organization or as an institution, there's a whole bunch of decisions that we make. Well, we're gonna find, we're gonna to pursue agreements with the rights holders within the territory over that shared and and do shared decision-making over those things. So that's the next part. Um, That's a simple framework. That's just saying, this is the bare minimum, we're gonna implement it. Oh, and then the, the third part is that we're gonna to commit to an action plan to review all our policies, um, to see if, they, if there are any areas where they don't conform to that minimum standard. So you have a standard, you have the ability to share, uh, to pursue agreements over share, to, to accomplish shared decision-making, and you have a commitment to review all policies, bylaws, laws, regulations, all that kind of stuff. That's a simple framework, that's three things. And I think what I would really ask is that people think about that concept and asking themselves, does my school board do that? Does my city council do that? Does my bank do that? Does my credit union do that? Um, mm-hmm. what, what does it look like for me to advocate that those ty- those three concepts are, which are really simple and, and now providing a framework by the province, are they being implemented in all the other areas and electing people who are going to do that and, and, and within our parties or within our, our, um, positions of power within our communities and all that kind of stuff.
0: Well, we're going to uh to wrap it up there. And I I know that uh folks have many more questions, but uh Telsalan's probably faint with hunger. And uh <laughs> if we make him keep talking, he's gonna he's gonna pass out. I was um, getting angry soon, I think is I will mention that uh dogwood uh we are planning to launch a letter to the editor tool next week, so I'll send that around. There's been a couple of really unhelpful um uh, opinion pieces by uh some of our local papers, including the Times Colonist, great name for a newspaper, uh, big Indigenous rights skeptics, apparently. So uh, I think it would be good to hear from some subscribers and readers uh, about why uh, folks support uh, this bill, why they support Indigenous rights, and why this is uh, the path forward for British Columbia. Uh, We are also going to make this webinar available in uh, recorded form. So we'll have a a video recording on YouTube, and we'll have an audio version that you can uh, listen to. If um, you didn't catch everything on the on the way uh, past, you can listen again as you uh, do dishes or cook or drive the car, electric car. Um, and we're gonna be, uh, yeah, hosting hopefully a series of these uh, chats uh, over the course of the fall. This was really a pilot, so you can see I'm getting used to the technology too, but uh, uh, there's, a, there's a bunch of folks with really interesting perspectives on, on this topic. Um, there's really cool projects going on around the province. And so we've got some interest from some other uh, speakers and guests who uh, who would be eager to uh, share their perspective as well. So I really appreciate you coming out and being the first, being the, the guinea pig and yeah. speaking to um, so many of our volunteers and supporters tonight. Uh, thank you again. And thank you. thanks, folks, for tuning in. Uh, we're going to leave it there. But if you have questions that you really didn't get answered, uh, you can send them to me. If you have my email address, I'm Kai. At dogwoodbc.ca and I'll try to track down answers for you. Uh, You can also email our general inbox at info at dogwoodbc.ca and we will do our best to get answers to the questions that you have. Uh, We'll leave it there. Folks have busy lives so we've taken up an hour and we appreciate it but uh, thank you so much for tuning in tonight and uh, we look forward to bringing you more of these chats about the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples and the BC Government's Declaration Act. Thank you very much and good night.